Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Yetter Farm Equipment. I'm Michaela Pauchner, Managing Editor at No-Till Farmer. In this episode, Contributing Editor Dan Crummett talks to Bill Chisholm, Chair of the Weed Science Society of America, about how evolving EPA regulations to protect endangered species will affect your herbicide use in the coming months. Uh, there are some big changes afoot at the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, the EPA is uh, beginning to set regulations for farm chemical use as that applies to the Endangered Species Act. And the first phase of this process involves farm use of herbicides. And that could mean you no longer have access to the crop protection options you've been using. Uh, Dan Crummett here, a uh, contributing editor for No-Till Farmer magazine, visiting with Bill Chisholm. Weed Science Society of America. Bill chairs the organization's educational campaign, and they deal with the ESA and how it will affect you, the grower. Uh, Bill, welcome, and thanks for taking time to visit with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Yes. Well, can you bring us up to date on uh, why and how the EPA is making these changes? So the... um, Endangered Species Act was signed into law in 1973, and it said that all federal agencies have to protect endangered species with any decision they make, any regulation they pass. And and just out of curiosity, I looked it up. The first act to protect wildlife was back in 1900, and it was passed because of the passenger pigeon. So it it's not a new thing for the U.S. government to be protective of animal species. Um, tell us uh, an example of what these changes could mean for growers going forward. Uh, we're dealing with herbicides uh, uh, in what you and I have discussed in the past, and uh, how is that going to affect people and when? Um, in in the the near future. Um, many, many herbicide labels are going to start having changes to protect endangered species. Some of the changes will be um, things to reduce drift, to reduce offsite movement due to drift. Some of the changes on the labels will be to reduce uh, runoff or erosion to make sure. And and in all cases, they want to make sure the pesticide stays on the field. And I think all of us want to make sure it stays on the field as well, because anything that moves off the field, uh, you paid for and you lost the value of that. So they're trying to see things that will help, see if there's things that will help keep these products on the field. Uh, how soon will farmers be affected by this? That That's a great question. Um, it, it's sort of two-phase. So um, two chemicals that are currently registered in list one and list duo, we will already start seeing those label changes to protect endangered species on them. They won't be described as such, but some of the label changes are there to protect endangered species. Um, starting... Next year, during discussions with registrants, um, new label changes will come about to to reduce runoff, drift, et cetera. We probably won't see very many of those until 2025. It's just by the time you change a label, 
and it goes through the regulatory process, it's almost a full season later that you start seeing those changes. Mm -hmm. So I don't think in, it, in some cases with a brand new pesticide coming through, they might see the changes earlier. But I think the majority of label changes will start seeing in 2025. Mm -hmm. So, so this is a great time to be talking about this and to be telling people what to expect so they can start thinking about these changes. Right. What, uh, uh, what can growers do to be proactive on this? What can they to do to mitigate, uh, their operation, uh, ahead of the game if possible? Yeah, that, that's a great question too, because this is going to be, I think of it as a sea change for agriculture. Growers are now going to have to think about how far am I from endangered species? There's some endangered species that don't move. There's some that are migratory that could come over your field. How close am I to endangered species? We've never had to think about that before. We're also going to have to think about ways to incorporate conservation practices. So in the current proposal from the EPA, in order to reduce runoff and erosion, they want you to do additional conservation practices, things like uh, cover crops, um, terraced fields, catchment bases to uh, catch runoff, et cetera, et cetera. For drift control, they want you to start thinking about, do you have enough buffer distance so if that pesticide moves off the field, it won't end up in a waterway or habitat? Do you have trees around your field that would help reduce um, drift and that sort of thing. So we're now going to have to, as users of these products, start thinking about those things that we never thought about. This is going to be on a field-by-field -field basis. Mm -hmm. So for uh, an average grower in Iowa who may have 10 different fields, he's going to have to think about the conservation practices and the drift potential in each field. If you're a crop consultant that has oh my God, hundreds of these fields, you're now going to have to start thinking about these on a field-by-field -field basis. So I think some way of integrating and having that information on your current conservation practices at your fingertips so that when you're making herbicide decisions, you can look at what conservation practices are already in place you need to start thinking about that. And, and clearly some conservation practices, you don't just move into cover crops without hiccups along the way. So some of these are going to be major changes for growers. And so they need to start thinking about not only can I get that information quickly, but uh, what are some of the trade-offs by going to some of these conservation practices? Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned it's going to be a field-by-field -field proposition with many variables uh, given any given field. Uh, if I'm a grower in, I'm in Oklahoma, say I'm sitting in central Oklahoma and there are endangered species in the panhandle of Oklahoma, does that affect me? How does this work? In the current language as described in the herbicide strategy, they talk about fields that are more than a thousand feet from habitat okay. for either critical habitat or the habitat of that species. So if you're more than a thousand feet away, you would not have very big impacts. Okay. So, 
So knowing where these species are would be helpful and, and sort of getting a feel for how close are they and that sort of thing is really important. That brings up a question that you alluded to earlier. Uh, the growers need information at their fingertips. What's being done along that line? How, how does a grower identify uh, his or her operation uh, in in reference to nearby endangered species? Uh, how, how do they look for, okay, what can I do to mitigate this uh, in, in my operation? Yeah, that's another great question. Uh, the EPA has a website called Bulletins Live 2. Unfortunately, the list, excuse me, the address is this long. Yes. Bulletins Live 2, you can go on that. Uh, describe your herbicide name. You have to have the EPA registration number because every herbicide is a little different. Give them in that website, you can give your field location and it will tell you um, whether there's restrictions on that pesticide or not. Um, one of the things the WSSA is working on is a communications webpage, and we're hoping to have not only just general information, some short presentations, uh, definitions, but also links to the Fish and Wildlife Service and National Marine Fisheries Service, they have maps of where these species are. They also have lists by state so that if grower wants to be proactive by on this, he can start looking up his, his state and seeing what species might be impacted mm -hmm. um, and try and figure out where they're located. The, the other thing I personally am really big on is you know, unless you actually know your state has some of these species, it's hard to understand how to be protective of them. So those those lists by the services are great for giving you snapshots of what the species looks like and, and describing them. Every county in the U.S., every county in the U.S. is going to have some endangered species on it at one time of the season or another, either through species that live there or migratory species. So we're all going to potentially have some impact. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment. Yetter is your answer for success in the face of ever-changing production agriculture challenges. Yetter offers a full lineup of planter attachments designed to perform in varying planting conditions. Yetter products maximize your inputs, save you time, and deliver return on your investment. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O dot com. Now let's get back to the conversation. What work uh, has the uh, WSSA done with EPA as far as uh, uh, trying to improve the timely access of timely information on this uh, I think you're you're working closely with them to see that agriculture has a place at the table, and uh, what what's going on in that in that realm. No, that that's another great question. One of our committee members, Dr. Stanley Culpepper, in Georgia, and and at the time his grad student looked worked with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to look at two salamander species found in Georgia. And at the time, 
for the Enlist Duo label, I think they had almost a million acres in counties where you could not use that product because of being protective of the salamander species. They worked with the Fish and Wildlife Service and did mapping of where these species are actually found. And they're found in a confluence of, of semi-aquatic areas and uh, forested areas. After going through and remapping, they got the number of impacted acres down to, I believe, a little less than 4,000. Mm. So they went from almost a million acres down to 4,000. So they're going to be working with the EPA um, and the services to try and see if there's easier ways to ground truth the maps to speed up this process. Because the in if they don't have better information available, the EPA is being very conservative and taking entire counties off of the label. Mm-hmm. It, in the future, we're hoping there'll be ways to speed up the process of finding the appropriate portions of these counties that need to be protected. Mm-hmm. So uh, in some earlier conversations and communication, you told me that this is only the beginning. Uh, we're dealing with herbicides, but uh, we have other things coming down the pipeline. Yeah, the um, the there was a recent lawsuit, and in that lawsuit, the EPA was directed to speed up streamline and speed up the review process between them and the um, services. In that, there were some things set up. So the first one that just came out was the Vulnerable Species Pilot Program. They looked at 27 listed species and tried to find ways they could be protective of those species um, on a broader basis and not have to look at every species individually for every single pesticide made in America. So for that, as part of that, they developed maps and those maps um, have pesticide usage limitation areas. And those are initial thoughts or locations of where these species are found. The next step is they're working on the herbicide strategy. Um, And on that, they will be releasing the final version, I believe, in May of 2024. And that's ways, again, to streamline the review process to speed this up. Um, That will be released in 2024. We think after that's released, new labels will start coming through and incorporating those protections. After that, um, they're going to work on the insecticide strategy. And there should be a final version of that by January of 2025. After that will be a fungicide strategy. They don't have the dates set yet, but it'll probably be in late 2025 or sometime in 2026. And then the final one is um, the rodenticide strategy, and they should have that one available very soon. So all the major classes of pesticides will have ways available to streamline how they uh, incorporate protections for those species. So if you think, well, it won't hit me, sooner or later, most growers are going to be using one of those products or another. So uh, I think all of us will be impacted very soon. And as you said, with every county having one or more uh, ESA-affected species, 
it it's going to come home soon. So <clears throat> what recommendations did you give farmers uh, uh, trying to align their 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 work with this uh, as far as uh, websites, farming practices, farmer organization efforts, that kind of thing. What, uh, uh, you know, crop consultant groups and so forth, because they're going to be heavily in, in, uh, invested in this and affected by it. Yeah. the um, One of the things I should mention is the herbicide strategy pointed out that if you are actively working with a technical expert to develop conservation practices on your field, you may not have to have any additional conservation mitigation uh, actions on your part. So clearly the uh, NRCS, um, many crop consultants work actively to develop uh, conservation practices on the field. So hopefully contacting them and seeing what their understanding is and versus what you're doing um, would be important. The USDA has hosted a number of webinars on this topic and, and will continue to do that um, to explain what's happening with pesticide regulations to protect endangered species. The EPA is working on a communication uh, plan for this, and I'm not sure when that will be available, but I think it's going to be available very soon. So they're developing communications materials and and that sort of thing that should be helpful to the user. Um, many commodity groups have been following this very closely, and in fact, the herbicide strategy got comments from many of them, giving their uh, insights and opinions on what's taking place. And and I know those groups are communicating that to their uh, members as well. Um, as I said, the WSSA is working on a communications website and we hope to make that available in January of 2024. Um, yesterday, for example, the Council on Agricultural Science and Technology CAST had a webinar on this topic and they're going to have, I believe, five more webinars and start releasing white papers on this topic, mm -hmm. on the impacts of this on agriculture. So I think the information is just starting to flow and hopefully it'll be the kind of information directed at, at growers and getting them some background information and, and understanding of what's about to happen. Okay, sounds like we're right on the cusp of this and I, I appreciate your time uh, very much for this. and and taking time to explain it. Um, I know there's going to be a lot of confusion and there's going to be a lot of rumors, uh, but I look forward to working with you in the future, particularly uh, as this uh, expands into insecticides and fungicides and the rest of FIFRA for that matter. And it seems like uh, we're all going to have a lot of work to do over the next four or five years. So yes. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Thanks to Bill Chisholm and Dan Crummett for today's conversation. A video and transcript for this episode are available at no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts, and you can read Dan Crummett's full article about the EPA's proposed herbicide strategy in the February 2024 issue of No-Till Farmer. Many thanks to Yetter Farm Equipment for helping to make this No-Till podcast series possible. 
From all of us here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Michaela Faulkner. Thanks for listening. <laughs>